Hey everyone, I'm your host, Wesley Tran, and welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie, a podcast where we'll be discussing how traveling has impacted a person's personal growth and purpose, and we'll be diving deeper to understanding the world's different human beings. Welcome to Recovering Travel Junkie. I'm Wesley, and today we have another special friend of mine. She is a music business professional. She's a lover of people, student of culture, citizen of heaven, and a young life leader. She is my friend, Bree Bird. Welcome. Hey, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. And the first question I like to start off with is, do you remember how we first met? Or even the first interaction, <laughs> which I think was like four years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago. You know, it was, so I remember it. It was fall 2016. We were both in London and we were in the same connect group at Hillsong London. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good time. I was like, another American. Woo. Yeah, same. And that's the only memory I have. I don't remember the interaction specifically. <laughs> and yeah. so it was just so funny that we met. It is. It is. Yeah. I feel like, I think we were like, maybe it was even at Alpha. Do you remember going to Alpha? Yeah. Yeah. I think that may have been it. Yeah. Yep. And I think, I think Jason, he came up to me. He's like, yo, there's another American over here. Come check her out. And then, <laughs> We just and then boom. Did. Yes, yes. Man, everybody was so, they were so warm in London. That was like probably, yeah. I have really fond memories because everyone was so kind and like so welcoming and just, yeah, like made you feel at home. Same, yeah. But before we touch on London, I want to talk about the places you grew up in, starting with Cincinnati, Ohio. Can you tell us yes. how it was? growing up there and then all the other places that you've been to? Yes, sir. All right. So yeah, I born in Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, chilling, 1996, a great year, year of the rat, I believe. <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah, I was grew up in Cincinnati and I feel like no offense to any Midwesterners listening to this podcast, but like, I don't can't think of any like super defining, <laughs> like, <laughs> characteristics of like growing up in Ohio. Um, but yeah, so born in Cincinnati, my parents and I, and my little brother, we moved to Switzerland when I was like four or five years old. Um, and we lived there for a hot minute, like just over a year. We were supposed to live there longer. And my parents were like, mm, no thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was enough. Like living there for a little over a year and going to an international school, that was enough for me to like really start to love um, traveling, to be comfortable being in places where people speak a different language than I do, to be intrigued and curious um, about people that who were different than me. I remember my best friend at the time in Switzerland was a German girl and a Pakistani girl. Um, and we would just like all go hang out at each other's houses. I remember like my German friend, she had like beet cake for her birthday. And I was like, what? <laughs> but like, that was like a German custom. And then I remember going over to my Pakistani friend's house and her mom made like the most lit food. Um, 
yeah. And then they would come over to my house and I don't even know what we ate there. We had, I don't know. <laughs> we had a good time. Uh, but yeah, so that was Switzerland. Uh, and mm-hmm. then we came back, came back to Ohio, um, lived there still <laughs> for a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> and then when I was 13, we moved the awake crisis happened. Um, my dad ended up getting a new job in South Carolina with Michelin, um, mm. which is a French company, but operating in the States. Um, so that was also interesting. We moved to South Carolina, very Southern city, but at the same time, there's a ton of transplants for international and just domestic because a lot of people move there to work at Michelin. Wow. And then also GE is, um, they have a, a headquarters there as well. So like wow. a mix of yeah it was like a mix of like a really southern town but mm. then also a lot of people who yeah weren't from there so that was that was like a cool experience and I love South Carolina that's where my passion for music really started to grow um yeah can you tell us what being a part of music business is yeah yeah so um music the music business is really interesting. Um, I would say I, if there's like two buckets of music business, one is like the creators themselves. Those the artists, the people writing music or singing it or recording it, whatever the musicians. And then there's everybody else who like a lot of us are there to really just support creators. Um, if we can't be creators ourselves, we're going to support you and like help you win. So I am in the bucket of like, I just want to be around creators and support them and what they do. Um, so I actually studied vocal performance. I like went to a boarding school in high school wow. for, op- for opera. That's like a random fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, and I was like, dad, I want to go to college for like singing for performance. And he was like, I'm not paying for that. Uh, he said it much, he said it much nicer, but that's my paraphrase. Mm. Um, but yeah, but then he, he's a marketing guy, you know, he's into business. So I was like, well, dad, I heard you could do this thing called music business. And he was like, okay, you could do that. Um, so yeah, I was like, if I can't be a creator, then I'm going to be around them for the rest of my life and support them. So mm. yeah, I work in music. Most recently I worked at rock nation, which started as a record label. Um, under Jay-Z. And then it grew. Mm-hmm. We also had music management. We even had a sports agency. So we represented like a few athletes, um, like Kevin Durant mm-hmm. and um, Kyrie Irving and a few other people. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also had events. So we had like a music festival um, called Made in America. So like also supporting creators there. And that was really mm-hmm. cool. So I did marketing, marketing for them and helping them get like brand partners basically. Um, that was that was like a whirlwind for sure. Like definitely thrown into the deep end. Um, but yeah, that was really yeah, cool. Can you tell and us then, how it was transitioning from from college into the industry, into the professional industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually that kind of like brings me back. I hope this like my order makes sense. But so I didn't go directly from college to working at Rock Nation. So I traveled some more. Right. So. After South Carolina, I moved to um, New York City to go to NYU. Went to NYU for three and a half years. I was able to shave off a semester, but I was like, you know what? School was really intense, and I don't feel like I spent a lot of time giving my life away um, in the mm-hmm. way that I wanted to and to serve 
just people in general, but also specifically the church. And so I had a connection of, I knew um, some missionaries that served in Bogota, Colombia, and they needed an, an intern, a student ministry intern. So I ended up actually living in Bogota, Colombia for six months after school, after New York, um, and working with high school age girls in Bogota, um, and like mentoring discipleship, and then also teaching English to some of our littler ones for a little bit. And then, yeah, then I came back to New York and then (laughs) I, then I started working at Rock Nation, um, which I wouldn't Mm. have traded. Like the way that that unfolded was like really like only the Lord could have done it. So it was like, honestly, like a whirlwind, but it was great. Yeah. Mm. That's awesome. And so I kind of want to jump back to South Carolina for a bit, because mm-hmm. that's what you call your hometown now. And mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what's the thing you're most proud of, of South Carolina? Mm, that's a good question. Especially when you travel and go around and like you go to London and you see something and you're like, only South Carolina has this. I miss yeah. this. Yeah. Oh, man. So being from Greenville, South Carolina, I actually, it's not necessarily distinct specifically of my town, but I think the South in general, um, I think Southern hospitality is real. Like it is a real thing. Um, just the way folks will go out of their way um, to serve you. And I know, right, like every area has its like issues, right? And like, so I'm not saying that there's not still like a lot of work that we can do in terms of like prejudice and um yeah like inequality but there is also a level of southern hospitality that I just have yet to find anywhere else um just like oh you don't like you don't have anyone to come pick you up from the airport of course I'll come get you I don't have to be your relative to like come get you from the airport or like give you a place to stay like for a couple days if you need a place to crash or um I don't know, just really making you feel celebrated like on your birthday or a day that you need to be celebrated on, but like maybe you don't have family or friends. Some You don't have like people to do that. Like somebody would step in um, and want to serve you and want to like be alongside you in that. And that was just my experience um, in South Carolina. Yeah, was the hospitality and just like, we would just like get into shenanigans. Like kids were definitely kids in my hometown <laughs> where I grew up. What do you mean by that? Oh man, we used to do just like, (laughs) we would just like get into shenanigans. Like South Carolina is not known for, you know, the best school system, um, (laughs) I love to say. (laughs) So probably when everyone else was like studying algebra, we were like just doing dumb stuff. Like there was a craze where like people would bring zip ties to school and they would, and I went to like a school where we had uniforms. And so they would like, get a zip tie and like connect your belt loop to the chair, like to your desk. So you wouldn't know it. And you'd be like, all right, like bell rings time to go to next class. And you're like, whole desk would go with you. And we would just like, yeah, just like spend our time, like thinking of ways to prank each other, like just doing dumb stuff, but like being really silly Mm -hmm. and like very carefree. And like, there's a level of freedom in our childhood um, that I'm very thankful for. And I know not, not everybody gets to experience. So, yeah. That's so cool. So funny too. And <laughs> what would you recommend someone if they're visiting South Carolina or even specifically Greensville for the first time? Yeah. 
Mm. If you're going to Greenville for the first time, Greenville's just really beautiful, like in terms of just looking at creation and like nature untouched in a lot of ways. Um, I pulled up images on Google and it's so beautiful. I could not believe that that's a thing. It had canals, I believe. Yes. Yeah. A lot of green trees, at least in pictures I saw. And yeah, beautiful. It's, like, it's a hidden gem. Yeah, it's like very vibrant. Um, our downtown is really beautiful because it's very quaint, but there's also a, still a ton of nature available. We have this park called Falls Park, and there's this river called the Reedy River that runs through it with this big bridge. And my boarding school is actually like right back up against that park. So our backyard was this like beautiful expanse of like green. We would like go on runs and um, growing up, our pastime, there wasn't a lot to do. So we would like go hiking, right? We would like go hiking or like just walk around downtown. So one big thing is, yeah, just like being outside in nature. Like, yeah, if you're from a place where you don't get to just like enjoy creation for what it is, I think Greenville's a really beautiful place. Um, yeah, to just like be in in the outdoors. Yeah. How would you s- describe the surrounding geography? So, for example, at least in Southern California, it's very dry and rocky and hilly. How would you describe the outdoors of Greenville in South Carolina? Yeah, Um, it's still pretty warm. We are still south. It's not like, you know, boiling hot, but it's it's still pretty warm. Our winters are very mild and Greenville is interesting. Most people think South Carolina and they think the coast, they think the beach. Greenville is in the northwest part of South Carolina. So it's actually at the very foot of the Appalachian Trail. It's at the end. Um, So it's close to what we call like the Piedmont and the foothills. So that's why like we also, hiking was more a part of what I did growing up rather than going to the beach because we were much closer to the mountains. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. And now I want to transition from the country to the city of New York. Can you tell us how transitioning there was? Yes. Oh, man. Culture shock, for sure. Um, New York is like this crazy, beautiful, fast, dark, crowded, dirty, vibrant, energetic place. Um, It's just like, it's like a mixed bag. And so I think... A lot of people, before they moved to New York, they've like really romanticized it. Maybe they've been once or twice, but they just remember like the energy. They remember Times Square. They're just like, yes, like this place. And so I was not immune to that. But some people, I think they have a honeymoon period when they move to New York and they're like, it's still that way for like at least a few months. My honeymoon Mm. period ended after about like four days. I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I think. I had, I had left a really solid community in South Carolina where I was from. I went to a boarding school that only had 240 kids. So we were really tight, really close knit. Um, and yeah, and I just had some like really deep and like rich friendships that I had built at the end of high school that, I mean, I'm still friends with them to this day, but it was just a very new experience to not have physical proximity to those people. So it came to New York. And in New York, you are surrounded 
by 9 million other people. But at the same time, you're like not really connecting with them on a deep level. Like you're, you're in a crowded place, but you're not necessarily fully known. So you like see all these people, you see all these ships and these souls and these like humans passing you by. Um, but you're not necessarily connecting with anyone because everyone's also so busy, right? Like New York is energetic. Everyone has a mission. People who move to New York, like they are ready to like take over the world or to change the world or to make it better, whatever. Um, and they are very driven and they have something, they have a course that they're on. Um, and oftentimes I think New Yorkers struggle with like making space and margin to still like build deep relationships and to still pour into one another and to be poured into like there's, yeah, there's like flip sides to being so driven and so um, like on your game. So I think that was a big learning curve for me was being like plucked out of like super close knit community, hospitality is everything to like, go, 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 like get, get what you need to get done. Um, because yeah, you can change the world, which is a good thing. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you got to s- slow down and take a breath. So, yeah. Yeah. And so in your early stages in New York city, how did you pursue intentionality of building relationships with people there? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, we talked about earlier that we're both Enneagram threes. So (laughs) one way that I achieve is by, at least in college, joining every club I can, (laughs) like (laughs) trying to, yeah, meet everybody that way. So it's like signing up for every welcome event, every club, like everything, visiting all the churches, like (laughs) I will make community. So yeah, that was, I think part of my first year in New York was pretty hard because I was really actually almost to the point of like trying to manufacture close knit relationships because I was like so desperately wanting to like recreate what I had just left in South Carolina. Um, Mm -hmm. That, yeah. So I, I was going to everything. I was signing up for everything. I was volunteering for everything. I was visiting all the churches. I was doing all this stuff to like just know more people and meet more people. Um, which is fine. Like showing up is actually really important, but I think you also have to remember like, well, then the Lord is the one that like brings people together and like actually forms bonds. Um, and like, if the Lord is the author of love, then he will like, like he will naturally help that love develop between people. So I spent a lot of time my first year trying to manufacture stuff that like later on years later, I realized the Lord was like organically sewing and like, you know, actually building up. So actually almost all of my best friends now in New York, I didn't even know in my first year, which is so funny to think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So did this community become the same community you had in South Carolina, the same style at least, or did you, did the culture just form a new type of community for you? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, Wow. You're a great question asker. Um, (laughs) my New York community, um, in ways it looks different also because I'm an adult now, right? Like I left South Carolina as an 18 year old and, you know, now I'm 24. So my friendships look different just by virtue of that. Um, but then also I think what's really cool is one, I think this is just, yeah, because I'm an adult, but then also New York adds a layer of this, but being an adult, you just have to work, I think a lot harder to like 
keep relationships alive because you're living such independent lives, right? You have jobs now, you know, some of my friends are married. Um, some of my friends are like even considering kids. Um, and so you just have to be a lot more intentional about like making space and time to pursue one another. Um, and to like seek each other out and love each other and say like, Hey, how are you? How are you doing? How's your soul? Um, so because of that, I think my friendships look a lot more like intentional now. Um, but they also are very deep and rich and there's like a lot less pretense. Like we don't have to like pretend that we're all good. And we also don't have to like get through all the pleasantries before we like get into the deep stuff. Like we can just like come and like, yeah. If you told me, you know, sophomore year of high school, that that's what my friendships would look like. I'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. That's so amazing. You have such a great community now to support you, especially in this time of crisis too. Yeah. 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 Um, I love, I love my friends. Like I'm obsessed with them. I should probably chill. (laughs) (laughs) And so next question I want to ask is New York city is known to be hustling and bustling culture place where you make your dreams come true. And I had a friend describe to me that New York city, it just feels like everyone's always better than you or always competing against you. Did you ever feel that way? when you were studying music business and working as a music business professional at all? And how did you overcome that stigma and pressure? Yes. Uh, Yeah. I just can start off by like affirming pretty much everything your friend said is so true. It is like really bustling. Um, It's like really celebrated. Like the grind is really celebrated. Like, like, let's talk about how we don't sleep, you know, like, let's talk about like how we work on the weekends. Let's talk about how we don't take breaks. Like, you know, like for a Sabbath is a foreign concept to people, right? Like taking a whole day away from work. Like, do you want a job? Like, honestly, yeah, you you don't want to say that in an interview in New York. Cause you know, like that might hurt your chances um, or just things like that. And yeah, even in the office, Um, I don't know if this is true of everywhere, but I have been in offices where, you know, we technically were a team, but it felt very cutthroat. It felt very much like, well, I need to get, you know, the next achievement. So when we do the next team stand up, I can say, you know, that I got this deal or I made this connection or I helped this artist or whatever. Um, and so I have been trying to think a lot, you know, about like, what does it mean to be like radically different? Like, um, I want to be a Christian that like works in spaces. Like I want to be around creators and they don't necessarily have to be just like, you know, Christian record labels. Like it can mean anything, but like, what is my presence as a believer? How does that affect the office space that I'm in? Like, how can I be a manager that like sees the value in the interns that I oversee and like makes them feel like, Oh, she manages differently. I wonder why, or how can I be a person? Yeah. in meetings that like, doesn't necessarily need to get all the glory, but like still wants to work hard and like contribute to the team. Um, and hopefully, you know, I don't have to like toot my own horn or anything. Like hopefully people might just notice like, yo, she just like works differently, but she still loves entertainment. She still loves music. She still wants the company to thrive. And hopefully they think, you know, I do a good job, but I, Mm. I, I don't have to do it in the same way. Um, And I I hope that that can also be a testimony um, or at least a conversation starter. People who are like, yo, why do you work in this way? That's so different from everybody else. Um, 
yeah. And I hope I want to be humble about that. I hope it doesn't sound, you know, like tuning my own horn, but I, yeah, I want to know what does it look like to work differently for the glory of God in music? Mm. Yeah. Have you, have you received any type of feedback during your time at rock nation? Like I can tell she's different and I like that about her that she's different. Um, yeah, I think the, the feedback I got the most, um, specifically at rock nation, uh, was like about my attitude basically was just like that. I, I always, no matter what happened, no matter what kind of day we as a team had, or like I personally had that I really tried not to let it affect and even like bring a positive attitude, bring energy. Um, yeah. And just like figure out where I could, yeah. Like be supportive. Um, yeah. Cause th- there were some, there were some tough days. I remember last year in 2018, I had the privilege of working on uh, rock nation did a, a deal with the NFL um, and I had a privilege of working on the task force, the initial task force that started to like work on that partnership and like ideate what would the campaign elements be and stuff. And we were like working some long days. Like I remember being in my bed at 3 a.m. working on a pitch deck oh, wow. and like wow. crying. <laughs> I was like crying <laughs> to myself, like, I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, but like, you know, still showing up the next morning and like, it's nobody else's, you know, it's not, every, well, not nobody else's, but for the most part, like, it's not the rest of my team's fault, right? That like, if I'm on a, a different task force, like, it's not everybody else's fault if you have like your own like personal things that you're working through. Um, and they can be very understanding of that, but like trying really hard not to let something hard that is happening in one area of life affect the way that I treat people in a different area of life. And that's not to say like, I can't, like you shouldn't compartmentalize and just never process things. But, um, Mm -hmm. the best, the best managers I've had are people who no matter what they are getting from their superiors, they have always tried to manage with grace and with kindness. Um, and so I, I hope to be a manager like that. I love interns. Uh, so I got Mm -hmm. to manage, um, a few interns in my time, Rock Nation. I like, I love just being like, what do you want to learn? Like, let's figure out how we can help you learn it. Like, who do you want to meet? Like, let me, let me introduce you. Like I, yeah. My interest <laughs> is like, yo, this girl was like <laughs> too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I did not get to where I was without people just like wanting to see me win and people supporting me and advocating for me. And so I would love to also be um, mm. someone who does that. And so I, I kind of, I received a little feedback that like that, that's what people saw in me. So I hope, yeah, that I can continue that of like, I didn't get here by myself. And so the buck doesn't stop with me. Like I want to help other people progress um, where they want to go. So, yeah. That's so amazing. I love the fact that you're retroactively trying to be a light wherever you are. And I want to ask you, how do you find mentors in your life? Ooh, good question. Um, so I have uh, a couple mentors. I have um, a mentor that I go to more so spiritually, like someone who disciples me. She is amazing. Her name is Amber. We go to the same church. Um, I think we have similar personalities. We're like both very energetic, love to just like find new projects and new things to do. So she, her full-time job is she works at a nonprofit. 
um, encouraging women of color to get active. But then also on the side, yeah, she's dope. But then also on the side, she's uh, kind of helping our church. Our church is very new. We're like five years old. So she's helping our church launch a women's ministry. Um, And then in addition, she's like trying to start her own nonprofit called Ready to Give, where she basically equips New Yorkers um, to learn resources on how to better care for our homeless neighbors. So um, yeah, yeah, she's dope. Um, so that's she, but she's also another believer and like a woman I really look up to. So spiritually, she is someone who disciples me. And then I have a friend slash mentor named JD. I actually haven't officially told him he's my mentor, but I decided that, um, yeah. <laughs> he, I interned under him like five, six years ago and he just has been someone who went out of his way to support and advocate for anybody any young person that he's, um, you know, like overseen. So I, I see this like actively, he is always like plugging another person on LinkedIn, like, Hey, this is someone I know hire them. Or he personally would reach out to me and say, Hey, like I, I saw this job that might work for you. Um, let me know if you'd like me to refer you like, and this guy is so busy. Like JD is actually, he is the VP of digital at Def Jam currently. That's his role. So like, wow. he's lit. Like this man is like, yeah. <laughs> on a first name basis with Kanye and Kim. Like he's amazing. He's also, yeah, he's just so freaking kind. And so I know his life is hectic. And for him unsolicited to like reach out or he he actually went to school in Clemson, which is just outside of Greenville, South Carolina. So we have that in common. So we'll go to the Clemson bar in New York and watch games. And so he'll text me and say, hey, are you going to the Clemson bar? And I'm like, you have so many other things to do. So the fact that you would just reach out to me is like, it meant so much. And he was so instrumental in me getting the job at Rock Nation. So he also is a professional mentor, somebody I look up to of like, he is someone who's doing it right. He is still kind, still has so much integrity, but has advanced so far in the music industry. So, yeah. Mm, That is so awesome. And how do you, as a mentor to other people, give back to them? Like, do you give them professional tips, such as the interns, for example, or do you mm-hmm. help guide people in your church spiritually? What does mm-hmm. you as a mentor look like? Yeah. Um, I think I kind of like, yeah, have it in two buckets the same way I personally have like a professional and a spiritual mentor. Um, professionally, yeah. Like, I love any chance to work with interns. Like, if someone's like, yo, I don't really want to manage an intern this semester, I'm like, I'll do it. Um, and yeah, so I love, yeah, just to sit with mentors or sit with interns, um, make them feel comfortable, make them know that, let them know that they can ask questions that they are here to learn. Um, there is no wrong question. And this time in college is like, it's for you to like figure out, it's for you to mess up, for you to learn new skills, for you to not know anything and then come out of it knowing so much more. Um, yeah. Uh, not that the bar is set really low, but just so they have freedom to know that like they can mess up and learn from that mess up as long as they, you ask somebody, let somebody in. So I think, yeah, for the most part, professionally mentoring would be for interns. And then um, spiritually, I volunteer with Young Life. Great organization. If folks don't know, Young Life is um, one of the largest and actually oldest um, kind of like 
youth ministries, parachurch, meaning it's not specifically affiliated with one denomination or anything, but like parachurch ministry, um, it started in like the forties by this dude named Jim Rayburn. But anyway, they operate all over the U S and actually globally. I volunteer with them in New York and young life just has a really unique heart for high school students. Um, and so I, yeah, I work with mentoring high school students in Astoria, Queens. Um, yeah. And it's part of it is one of the big things is we help kids like introduce kids to Jesus Christ because every kid has the right to know Jesus if they want. So introduce kids to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their relationship with him if they so choose. Um, but one of the other big things we always say is that we are in it with kids. We are friends with kids, regardless of their response. We will always show up. We will always be there for them. Um, so I, I love that about young life is that we are adults that are not related to these kids, but we still have said, Hey, I'm committed. Like, I just want to see you grow and flourish and I love you. And yeah, so that's young life is, I think a dope way spiritually that I get to hang out with my high school friends. Yeah, that's so awesome. I love the fact that so many people are pouring into you and you're pouring out to others. Like you're being such a light in this world. That's so awesome. That is way too nice, but thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a fun time. Young Life in particular, the like personality of that ministry is like very energetic, very outgoing. We like to be very silly. There's like lots of games and skits and you get messy and dirty and like there's lots of surprises. Like we love, we want kids to be surprised, but like in a good way by like what always is happening. Um. Yeah, yeah, can so you give us an instance of what that surprise looks like? Yeah. Oh, man. So here's the big thing, because if any Young Life kids listen to this, I can't. It's like it has to be a secret. So I can't tell everything in public. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, just what like we so we take kids to camp every year is a big thing. Unfortunately, this year that won't happen because of COVID. Um, but we're still trying to figure out ways to still like engage with kids in a healthy and safe way that you know, follows the laws and regulations of whatever place we're in. Um, But like at camp, number one is it's seven days, but we don't, kids will not know anything more than like the next 12 hours, like what's happening. So like every kind of like every day you wake up and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be good. (laughs) Um, And so there's, there's like, you know, there's games and there's like, you know, camp wide activities. You have like, 700 kids participating in this like same I don't know if it's like a relay or um there's just like different like quote-unquote like wars and you're like in teams and you're trying to get the most points and you're doing wacky crazy stuff to get the most points um or we'll Mm -hmm. surprise kids and they they get to like you know pie their leaders or like just different things like that where like (laughs) kids won't know until basically like the moment that they're doing it um but the whole point is that it's it's always a good surprise and one of the big things, the way, the reason we do it is so that they know, like, I don't always know what's coming next, but I can trust my leaders. I can trust them that they always have something good coming next for me. And that should uh-huh. symbolize the way that they can trust God. Like, I don't always know what God's doing, but I know whatever's next is going to be good. Um, so, yeah. Wow. That is so cool. And thank you for sharing, like, that experience of young life, too. And yeah. now I kind of want to transition to London kind of a big pivot moment for both of our lives too. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. how your experience in that city went? Yes. 
London was actually so amazing. If I could live anywhere in the world and bring everyone I want with me, actually London would be the place. I love London. Um, I love, you know, like the diversity of cultures that is in London. Um, Mm -hmm. I talk to a lot of British people. And what's funny is that I think, you know, New York is a melting pot too, but it still is very segregated in a sense that like very clearly by neighborhood, you can see like kind of like ethnic concentrations, right? Or cultural concentrations. Mm-hmm. Whereas London, it's a melting pot, but it's like definitely much more mixed in. So they say actually like New York maybe is like a tossed salad. So there's like still very like clear chunks of stuff everywhere versus like London, it might actually be the real melting pot where everything is like actually really blended together. Um, mm-hmm. And not to erase the culture that they had, right? Like the UK has a history of imperialism and colonization that like kind of contributed to that. But now, currently, even out of something very sad and very ugly, like something very beautiful has happened, where you just have, yeah, this like smattering, this like mixture of people. So everyone's really comfortable, like a black person living next to a white person, living next to um, somebody from India, you know, like, or somebody of Indian descent. Like, it's not weird or strange for that to kind of still happen. Um, And I, I love that. So you have like diversity of food, um, of cultures. Mm-hmm. Like even if you go out, if you go out dancing, like Caribbean culture and Caribbean music and Afrobeats, like that's really popular. So you can have like, you know, I don't know, the whitest kid like saying Wagwan to his friend and like just like jam into some music. And it's not weird. Like it's cool. And there's, that's not appropriation. It's appreciation, which is really cool. Because mm-hmm. um, there is a difference. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I I really loved London for that diversity. Um, and then also I took some really cool classes while I was there. I took some really cool classes on the Black diaspora as it oh. has its history specifically in London. So I took a, yeah, I took a class called Black Urban Studies mm-hmm. that was about Black people in London post, kind of like post, you know, 1950, because there's a huge influx of, uh, people of color coming to London after basically like rebuilding after World War II. And mm. then I also took a class called Perspectives on the African Experience that was taught by a man who um, grew up in Ghana, but now living in London. And just, yeah, talking about the perspective of someone who's like first generation African in modern London and like what they, how they view, um, yeah, colonialization, imperialism, wow. you know, globalization, all these things. So really cool mm-hmm. classes definitely mm-hmm. yeah pivotal for me i think i want to segue into this topic because it'll be interesting how do you think all of these classes affected your identity your racial identity as an african-american woman mm-hmm. yeah man i think let's see in some ways it helped validate some things for me because Blackness is global, right? Like if I had only, you know, stayed in the U.S. and never really traveled and never really saw what it meant to be a Black person not in the U.S., I think I would have felt alienated because then that would have been a very narrow definition of what it means to be Black. And in some ways, the way I grew up, like I grew up in a predominantly white area in South Carolina. So there are some ways 
socioeconomically that like my upbringing matched more of like my white peers than my black peers. And so there's like always that tension. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But then to go to London and see like, there are people who still identify, they are so proud to be black, but their black experience is so different than mine. Helps me to see like, yo, you can be black and there's a diversity of experiences that still follow under that and are still very true. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. Like, one of my favorite things too is like I love seeing just like how multilingual black people can be like I don't know just like seeing somebody speak like tree and then like German and then English and then Portuguese you know like that Mm -hmm. I love that but like blackness is global so cool Mm -hmm. yeah that's so cool and what's one thing you love sharing with other people about black culture Mm. man like something insightful that you know someone like me probably doesn't know about black culture and you're like that's us and I love it oh I don't know well number one I don't know what you know or don't know but I can tell you some things I'm I'm proud of yeah uh, go for it um being black I think and and these things I think are global I think Black people love to celebrate well. Like, we will gas you up. Doesn't matter what you're doing. If we think it's fun, like, we will gas you up as if you just, you know, like, cured cancer. Um, <laughs> if Yeah, if, like, we're having fun. So I, I love the ways that, yeah, Black communities around the world, I think we're just, like, we have a lot of energy and we know how to celebrate well. And a lot of our history globally has seen a lot of oppression so still to be so resilient and still to celebrate no matter what I think is something that's really cool I'm really proud of my history in that way um I hope that I carry that in that way that like no matter what happens I I never forget how to celebrate well um I love this isn't fair because I know some black people don't like to dance but in general I love how much we like to dance we like make a dance out of literally anything um yeah like the mop like that to me like quintessential example of like all right let's just like make a dance move out of us cleaning like that's I love that um which kind of goes into I think the celebrating part um but yeah I love here's the thing that I learned in um class in London is W.E.B. Du Bois concept of double consciousness um which kind of deals with like being a person of color understanding how you see yourself in your own eyes but also how you are perceived by essentially white people or by the dominant culture as well like you need to understand there's a double consciousness you need to understand how you're perceived in both ways Mm -hmm. and so that's a a concept by W.E.B. Du Bois but if you take that further and say that like often people of color this isn't even true of just black people but people of color have to be like fluent in two cultures, right? You have to be fluent in the dominant culture of where you're from, and then you have to be fluent in your culture if you're the minority. So Mm -hmm. being Black in America means that, like, often I'm fluent in, like, what the dominant, like, white culture has been. Like, we learned, the history we learned in school was not the history I learned at home. I knew a lot more Mm -hmm. about, like, famous African-American figures at home than I learned about, like, you know, all the other founding fathers and predominantly, like, white history that was taught at school. And what's been cool is that my friends, especially recently, have shown a lot more interest. My friends, my white friends, particularly, who are like, I had no idea. Like, essentially, you were learning so much more history than I was. Like, they're like, I didn't know about X Y Z person. I didn't know about Marcus Garvey. I didn't know about 
you know, Madam CJ Walker. I didn't know about Malcolm X. Um, they all, yeah, they only knew the, the people we learned in school. So growing up fluent in two cultures has been, um, interesting, but kind of cool. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that positivity, especially (laughs) when all you see in the media is negativity, but just thank you so much for everything you said about black culture and all the positive things for sure listen to more of that honestly just because of how saturated the media is yeah I mean thank you I think it goes both ways right like thank you for your curiosity right like if you want to know like I would love to tell you I know sometimes I think people get really frustrated like they want to say hey like it's you know it's mine it's not my job as a black person to educate everybody um and I can see, you know, like how some people might get tired, but like, it, it takes a lot of courage to ask. It takes a lot of courage to be like, Hey, I don't know this thing, but I want to know this thing. Um, I want to know about mm-hmm. your culture. I want to know about you. Um, I want to know your story. So yeah, man, if you have a question, I want, let's talk about it. Like, thank you for, yeah, the courage to ask. Yeah, Bree, thank you so much for sharing all those things you said about that culture. And I want to jump back to London, just because we were back in London. And is there anything you recommend someone to do when they're visiting London? Oh, yes. Actually, I had the privilege of going back to London this year, right before things got super crazy with COVID, um, which is, yeah, it's like kind of risky to think about now. But yeah, we went at the beginning of March. Ooh. Oh, wow. yeah and man that was a great trip we one thing we did we went to Winston Churchill's war rooms um Mm -hmm. so basically kind of like the British headquarters for you know basically war strategy during World War II was this compound um deep underneath underneath the city um I can't even remember the exact site. It's underneath like a, a, a different building, but nobody knew actually it was down there until like, I think the seventies or the seventies or eighties, people didn't even know that that's where things were going down. But so Winston Churchill, like basically like led, you know, the European front from there. And that was so interesting to see. Cause there's a lot of artifacts that you see about his life there. You just also see like the ways that they worked. Like it is amazing to me that they won a war given the like lack of technology that they had. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. just, just insane stuff. So it's really cool to see. And then also you just learn a lot about his personal life. For example, Winston Churchill was like a super depressed man. He said he, he struggled a lot, um, with deep depression throughout his life. And to see somebody oh, wow. like, you know, like somebody that high functioning, that able to, um, yeah, like lead, yeah, like lead a war basically while still struggling so personally and so deeply um was really interesting to me it made me have a lot a lot of respect for him like even more so than before um yeah to see just like also yeah just some of the things that he personally struggled with so Winston Churchill's war rooms if you can go and you can if you can get a private tour even better because they have some gems to drop those guys um I also finally got to do the London Eye I had never done that you know, you got to do some basic tourist stuff sometimes. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, just go for it with mm-hmm. the London Eye. And then um, we saw a Chelsea game. 
which is really mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah, I got to see it uh, from a box even. So that was really cool just to watch and to hear like some, I, I will watch soccer, AKA football y'all, but I, uh, I'm not like the biggest fan. I don't, I'm not the most knowledgeable. So watching it with people who are very knowledgeable was really cool and like humbling and just really funny. Um, like a drunk fan ran on the field in the middle of it and just like stood in the middle of the field, like triumphantly, which I thought like, first of all, that would never happen in the U S but second of all, I think that's just hilarious how bold he was. So that was also really fun. Um, yeah. And just eating really good food. Eating, if you can make it to Haddon Street Kitchen, that's, yeah, Haddon Street Kitchen. I had the best beef Wellington I have ever had in my entire life. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Beef Wellington. Yeah. I miss that so much. I used to make it actually for like Christmas, just following Gordon Ramsay's recipes. Oh, shoot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking back to the war rooms, actually, I remember I was watching a World War II documentary like a month ago during this pandemic and saw so many similarities of wartime and pandemic time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you felt that way too while looking back at your experience in the world, of the similarities that we have today. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, in some ways, I think we have lost uh, our concept of like this like duty to country, right? Because we've seen patriotism used in some pretty evil ways. So I think a lot of people are wary, very wary of like, you know, being too patriotic, Um, which is fair. But then I think in times like this, like in a pandemic where, you know, staying home, me making the personal decision to stay home actually theoretically comes with the benefit of like my fellow countrymen, right? Like everybody else will benefit from me staying home and vice versa. Like I benefit from my neighbor staying home so that we can stop the spread together. And so there's like an element of like, almost like, yeah, duty to country mm-hmm. that we have to revisit and like rekindle. Um, but yeah, it kind of brushes up against like, right now I think we're in like very hyper individualistic society where it's like, I'm gonna do me, I'm gonna do what's best for me. And as long as it doesn't necessarily like hurt you, I'm gonna keep doing it. So now, yeah, we're talking a lot about personal liberty and how does that balance with personal freedom? Yeah, personal liberty versus, you know, duty to my neighbor to sacrifice something that I want to do for their good, for their flourishing. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, we have to revisit that. That's a very like wartime concept. Yeah, for sure. And we, as the United States are such an weird, unique position as well with this conflict of liberty in quotes and for safety and mm-hmm. that could be in quotes as well. Mm-hmm. And now I kind of transition to uh, Colombia. Yeah. Can you tell us how that was? Oh man, I love Colombia. If yeah, everybody's got to go. Everybody's got to go to Colombia because for such a relatively small country, there's so much history, the terrain, like literally just like yeah, the environment is beautiful. There's different terrains like in close proximity to one another um so I lived in Bogota Colombia which is the capital um it's pretty like central in the country and contrary to what people think Bogota is actually it's very high up high elevation and so even though the latitude would make you think you know that it's supposed to be tropical 
Bogota does rain a lot. It rains probably at least four days a week, but it's like no hotter than 60 most of the time. So they, they call it like the city of perpetual fall. It's like rainy and kind of cold. Um, if you talk to any other Colombians, they call it La Nevera, which means the fridge, the refrigerator, because the Bogota is like the coldest place in, you know, in Colombia, theoretically. So, um, yeah, so Bogota is very interesting, very metropolitan, depending on who you talk to. It's like between nine and 12 million people. Um, it's in the middle of a, a valley in the Andes Mountains. Um, but a lot of you know, poor communities have like kind of started to build homes like up the sides of the mountains, up out of the valley. And so some people actually, yeah, depends on who you actually talk to about a census and who who counts, which is also another, you know, like social thing that's going on is um, the city is split up into what's called stratas, um, which basically kind of delineates your your socioeconomic position. But stratas are determined basically on on how much you pay in utilities how much your electricity and your, your gas and your water cost really basically depend. Yeah. It's super interesting. It's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but yeah, that determines, yeah, where you kind of sit your social standing in the city. Um, so Bogota is very interesting and Colombia in general is very, still very fresh off of a civil war, right? Like they had a lot of guerrilla fighters, um, and they had this thing called the FARC, uh, they're very, yeah, radicalized guerrilla fighters. And it depends on who you talk to, right? Because there's always many sides to a story, but um, was major tension um, between, yeah, like some, a lot of like lower class farmers out in the country and, you know, some more elite rich folks in the country. And so there's a lot of tension and some people militarized. And so, especially in the countryside, it was very dangerous to go out there because it was really kind of ruled by the FARC, these guerrilla fighters. And they also were involved in the, you know, in the drug trade a little bit. And, but they were also known for being very ruthless, um, you know, killing people who were opposed to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But then at the same time, you had people in power in Colombia, like government officials who were, they wanted to keep their, their great public standing. So they would actually, we found out they were kidnapping um, a lot of young poor men in the city from the south of the city. They were promising them jobs out. They would bust them oh, out wow. into the countryside. Then they would dress them in uniforms of the FARC, of the op- opposing fighters. They would dress them in uniforms and they would execute them. And then they would come back and say, hey, we, we killed more guerrilla fighters. We were winning the battle. We're, we're restoring order. So there were a lot of young young people that were actually murdered in in the name of this, of this like civil war and basically like try, trying to keep face and trying to keep a good reputation. So yeah, there's like a, a lot of history, a lot of, a lot of hurt, um, there, but also Colombians also really know how to celebrate, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. they also know how to have a really good time and great food. A lot of the people are so warm, uh, call it gente amable, uh, just mm-hmm. really, or really friendly. Um, it's not as common for Colombians to like welcome you into their home. Home is very private space, mainly for family, but in other ways, like very hospitable. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So thinking like I would, I flew into Colombia. I got in really late when I, I went back to visit, I got in at like 1030 and my friend, mm-hmm. he's like, Hey, like, of course I'm going to come pick you up. You're not going to take a, a cab by yourself as a young single woman. Like I have a car. I'm going to come get you. Of course. Um, just like things like that, also very hospitable and also very hardworking. Colombians, like a lot of them are in the office by seven and they don't leave until, you know, like 
six or seven. So also very hardworking um, culture um, and, and not mm. complaining about it at all. Like I feel like Americans, if we were in the office from seven to seven, you would hear about it. Oh, um, totally. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so many of my Colombian friends, they're like, no, nah, that's just how it is. Like, you know, they, they just, they work hard. Um, but mm. they, yeah, not necessarily like always, you know, complaining about things, but figuring out how to like, all right, we're just going to keep it going. This is how we got to do it. So, yeah. Mm. That's so cool. So Brie, can you tell us about the safety concerns about visiting Colombia? Because I know at least my expectations, which might be a lot of Americans' expectations as well, is that it could be slightly dangerous from all the media that we've seen of the drug lords and violence and civil war. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. how it was going to Colombia and all those safety concerns? Yeah. Um, I think in a lot of ways, and Colombians will say this too, the media has been, I think, really unfair, um, of really only portraying one narrative of, of, you know, of Colombia. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So everyone, yeah, thinks, you know, narcos first and foremost, Mm -hmm. and there's so much more to the history of Colombia, but yeah, also you can't be naive. They, they have had a pretty recent, um, and tough, tough history. So, and on one hand, I actually, a lot of my Colombian friends say that like us gringos, when we get there, like we're much, we're much bolder actually moving throughout the country than a lot of native Colombians because they're, they're not too far removed from like, they remember the years when the FARC, you know, ruled the countryside. And so, you know, people didn't leave the cities. Um, people didn't really leave many city centers because it was like, well, if you go out there, you know, it's, it's a lawless land. Um, And so like I I went camping um, in this region called Salento in, uh, in a, in a, they're called departments, almost like our States here in the U S so in a department called uh, Armenia, I believe. And that is like the coffee region. So it's so beautiful. Um, Like when I was talking about Colombian terrain, like you have like hot beachy areas and you have like high, like mountains in the Andes. And then you have, um, like in the coffee region, it's like kind of these rolling hills. There's like lots of thick fog that rolls in. There's this like incredibly tall wax palm trees. Like it just, it feels almost like prehistoric. Like you're like, I'm oh. sure a dinosaur is going to like come out. Like it just feels <laughs> like you're, you're just like not in, you know, 2020 in, in real life, but you are. And so, but I went out to the coffee region cause we were going to like go tour like the like coffee farms and we're going to, the hiking out there is great because it's like not necessarily as strenuous and and it's a really mild climate um but at the same time that's also like you know out essentially in what's called like the countryside and so our the the person who owned the campsite was telling us you know like 10 years ago his neighbor his nearest neighbor was you know miles away but his neighbor was murdered by the FARC by guerrilla fighters like they, they basically came and they wanted to take some of his property I guess and the neighbor mm. was like no so they shot him um, wow. like stuff like that happens. So, and that's, that's not too far removed from a lot of native Colombians minds. So in some ways, like my friends, a lot of my friends who grew up in Bogota were like, you have seen more of my country than I have because my family just, we didn't travel like that because it wasn't safe, but now mm-hmm. it is. Now it is, it's much safer, but it's going to take people a lot of time to become comfortable again, to move around really freely. Um, so that's one mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, but then also, you know, there's still sometimes there's still things like 
you know, don't walk around with your cell phone, just like all willy nilly, like a dum-dum, like, you know, you be, be smart, but that's the same thing even in Europe. You know, if you go, like you go to Paris, people know that a lot of Paris has like pickpocketers. There's mm-hmm. be wise. Don't be dumb. Um, yeah. The, the phrase in Colombia is dar papaya, uh, which directly translates to like giving papaya, like the fruit. But it basically means like in English, when we say like, it's like taking candy from a baby. Like when you're basically like giving your stuff to, you know, robbers or thieves, it's the same yeah. thing. They say like, don't, don't give papaya. Don't like, you know, hand your property over to thieves, like be smart. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's called, yeah, don't dar papaya, basically. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up all those positive things about Colombia too. It just sucks. The media portrays Colombia as a essentially a war zone. And would you encourage new travelers to explore those rural areas out away from those cities? Yeah, I think, you know, you got to be smart. And what was great is because I lived there, I had Colombian friends. So I was also exploring these places like with, um, you know, like native Colombian friends. So like navigating some areas is much more, much easier. You have friends who are just like very familiar with like, not just the language, but just like customs and things. Right. Um, yeah, not to like be a little shady, but like, you know, sometimes the cops in Colombia like to take bribes. So like having, you know, my friends who are like native Colombians, like help talk to the cops and we like need to pass a certain place. And they're like, you know, can you give us some pesos and we'll let you go. Um, or like going to get a speeding ticket, but you know, you can like give a few pesos and just keep going. <laughs> like, so in that way, it was, it was, it was great to travel with, with my friends who are like from Bogota or from Bucaramanga or from places like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I would encourage people yeah, there's so many different terrains. So you have the coffee region, which is kind of very hilly, rolling hills and very mild, and, which is really interesting. Then you have the the plains. Um, and so that's also really interesting. So you have cities like Villa Vicencio, which is like warm, very tropical, but a little bit flatter, a little bit closer to like farmland, um, which is interesting. So like if, when you drive out to Villa Vicencio, there's like sausage stands on all over the road like all the time so we would like we stopped we like did a road trip we like stopped for like random roadside meat which I'm gonna tell you is very delicious but Ooh. you know make sure you bring your your traveler's sickness medicine <laughs> with you because <laughs> yeah we were definitely regretting that for a little bit but like now long term wouldn't change it was so delicious but so that's that's one thing and then then you have the coast uh which is very hot very tropical um, you have Cartagena, which is um, one of the biggest coastal cities of Colombia. It also reminds me a lot of Charleston, South Carolina, just because the histories are very parallel with the way that the slave trade happened and and how Black people settled in the country. Um, so the large majority of the Black population in Colombia is on the coast because of the way the slave trade happened. But a lot of Cartagena is very Black, and but you see a lot of like those African roots in like the city's very colorful. Um, there's, yeah, it's like the way that dance and salsa operates there. Like the way that the walls, like the city is very old. There's an old city that like basically is like a fort um, because it was like this big port and trade. So you have like, yeah, you have coast and, and warmth and it's very sticky and sweaty and colorful and loud. And the food is like very like, you know, lots of seafood, but then you have Bogota, which is like in the mountains and it's colder and you have lots of like hardier things. So like 
a big dish in Bogota is called ajiaco, which is this like potato soup. It's very hearty and warm and like helps you get through those like chilly days. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just so much going on. Like Colombia is amazing. Yeah. You guys got to go. Wow. That sounds so amazing. And Colombia is definitely going to be on my list for sure. And I want to wrap things up now. I'm going to, I want to ask you, how do you think all these travels to the big cities of New York, London, and going to completely something foreign to you, Colombia, has affected and influenced your passion of music business? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think traveling has helped me realize, one, just how prevalent Western and particularly U.S. culture is around the world and in some ways it like honestly kind of saddens me because I'm like yo when I come to Columbia like I don't want to hear you know Drake I want to hear like what's what's (laughs) y'all what's your favorite music like I get enough of him so in some ways it has made me like also much more conscious of like I don't want to just I don't want to normalize U.S. culture so much that like we don't get to celebrate other cultures like I, I want other people to feel like yo, my, my culture is still worth celebrating. My music is still worth listening to. My music is not lesser. My music is not, you know, the secondary thing. Like U.S. Mm -hmm. music is mainstream and then mine is the secondary thing. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to ever be a person that makes somebody else feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and it also like has encouraged me to like, yeah, like think of different perspectives and, and also want to bring other music to the forefront makes me want to listen to more music that's not in English and that's not from where I'm from. Um, Cause also, yeah, other folks have like, they do lit stuff too. Like they have cool beats or like, you know, just cool ways of, of approaching music or styles or singing. Like one, that one person I'm obsessed with, I love this guy named Carlos Vives. He's from Colombia. Okay. He's like, honestly, like kind of old ish now, but he like, you know, just sticking around, still making hits. We love him. Um, and yeah, he's like kind of what's called like vallenato, um, but also some of my like Colombian friends are like he's also kind of what's called like tropi pop, tropi pop, which is like tropical pop. Um, but anyway, like he's just so fun. His music is just like so uplifting. It's like very distinctly Colombian. He loves being Colombian. He has this song called La Tierra del Olvido, which is just about like how much he loves Colombia. And yeah, I just love stuff like that. Like be proud of where you're from and like appreciate other people's stuff, but also, yeah, like be, yeah, be proud of, yeah. Like what music or what culture, where you're from, like what you create, be proud of that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't dilute it for anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so cool. And my closing question is what would you recommend someone to live a regret-free life? Like this can be a general answer of just traveling somewhere or doing a certain thing. And so what would you recommend someone to live a regret-free life? Oof. <laughs> That's a big question. As a 24-year-old, I feel like any answer I give, like, I don't know if it will apply in 10 years. But I mean, yeah, from my 24-year-old wisdom, I think, and also as as a believer, I think you know, pray about everything and like ask to seek the Lord's will and everything. But I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that it's not very clear. I think there's going to be a lot of times in your life where you come up on like maybe two or three options and they actually all seem like very viable. And they're like, you know, 
God can want me to do all three of these things. Um, and so a piece of like wisdom I got, uh, at the beginning of college from this ministry I was in, my, my mentor at the time told me about the concept of blessed insignificance, meaning that like, you know, you, my friend are not big enough to mess up God's plans for you. Um, so, you know, like if you have three options and you've prayed about it and, you know, you've like searched the word about it and you've talked to different people that you trust about it and, you know, nothing seems like very clear of what decision you should make, like just take a step in honestly any direction. Um, because truly you are not big enough to mess up, you know, God's plans for you. So yeah, just as long as like, if it goes with his word and you've prayed about it and you feel like it's not against what the Holy Spirit's doing, like just take a step, just do it. Mm. I love that answer. That's such a great answer. And closing question, final question is, do you have anything you want to promote? Ooh, yes. You guys, if you are looking for an organization to donate to um, during COVID or outside of COVID, honestly, Young Life, the organization I volunteer with, they do amazing things, but really first and foremost is they want to care for the teens and the youth of our world. Um, And one thing that means is like, you know, providing spiritual mentorship and discipleship, but also caring for their physical needs as well. So like I even know in New York, we're trying to fundraise money to help, you know, give supplies to teen moms and their babies in New York, just so that they can, you know, make it through COVID without having to go out and put themselves or their kids at risk. Um, And so just things like that. So if you want to, you know, give money to, Anybody, Young Life would be one of them. I love them so much. Check them out. Thank you so much, Bree. It was so fun listening to all these crazy stories and having <laughs> you on the show. And more importantly, just catching up again. Because we haven't had a good conversation since like I visited you in New York. I know. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Drop the ball. Thanks for listening, though. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey guys, it was so amazing listening to Bree's stories and how traveling has been a huge part of her life. I love the phrase she used of appreciation and not appropriation. I think that's so true as we get exposed to different cultures. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to follow Recovering Travel Junkie on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Be sure to catch us next time on wherever you get your podcasts. See ya.